as far as the eye can see, there is like a red line of that oil going right across the Gulf of Mexico. It is endless. The turtle's coming up for air, and when it does, it's gulping the surface and it's picking up that oil that's floating on the surface. So it's taking it into so its, its body. So it's taking it into its body, and of course, if you're if you're drinking oil, it's not not good for the digestive system. So he's he's in distress. This oil spill couldn't have come at a worse time. With spring breeding season barely underway, the impact it could have on the animal population is being called unimaginable. Well, with the British Petroleum oil spill, the size of San Diego County looming off the coastline, the results could be devastating. If you put one drop of oil on a bird, that area now wicks in salt water, and the entire bird can get wet, lose their waterproofing, have a problem uh, diving underwater to forage for fish and food, and, uh, and starve to death. The wetland is where the food chain starts, and the oil will contaminate that, killing the microorganisms and algae, then the isopods and crabs, which the bird and other animals feed on. The oil essentially shuts down the whole ecosystem or food web at the very base or fundamental level. So, so this is a big problem. The cleanup is, is, is going to be difficult and uh, not necessarily uh, something that we can recover from quickly. What I want people to know is this isn't Katrina. This is not Armageddon. Farther you get from the spill, that chocolate milk looking spill starts breaking up into smaller pieces and it it looks if someone has ever had diesel fuel in their bilge and pumped it overboard it gets looking more and more like diesel fuel the farther away you get from it oil hits the beach hello there's oil on the beach secondly there won't be any people on the beach yes that's a positive third thing i might be able to keep my lights on at night because there won't be any turtles on the beach the turtles will be smart enough not to show up and at some point, the beach will fix itself. Tammy Mines was surfing a stylist blog the other day and stumbled upon a matter of trust. It's an organization that collects hair and fur and then turns it into all-natural oil-collecting booms. Some are made from recycled pantyhose, and some of the hair is turned into mats that sit on top of the water. They've collected hundreds of thousands of pounds of hair from all over the country. It works for the same reason you wash your hair every day, because hair collects oil. Mr. Brown, thanks for being with us. You've made some pretty stunning statements about this oil spill and the response by the president. Do, do you honestly believe the president of the United States wants this oil spill to spread, cause billions of dollars in damage, ruin people's livelihoods? To this oil slick approaching, you know, the, the Louisiana shore, according to certain uh, in NOAA and other places, if the winds are right, it'll go up the East Coast. This is exactly what they want, because now he can pander to the environmentalists and say, I'm going to shut it down because it's too dangerous. While Mexico and China and everybody else drills in the Gulf, we're going to get shut down. Tuesday, May 11th, 2010, and hey, wide world. You've got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. My co-host, Dave Oz. Oh, hi, you, Peter. Excuse me. I'm, I'm just drinking my, my Pepsi throw-up. I mean, throwback here. And I, 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 you have to excuse me for a few moments. I, I get sugar shock. Oh, David. Yes. You know, I, I saw that uh, reference to um, the taking the corn syrup out of uh, Mountain Dew throwback. Mountain throwback? Hey. Mountain upchuck? I mean, oh, I mean, if, tell, tell me the guy, tell me the guy in the advertising agents who said, I know, throw up, a throwback. Works uh, for me. Works, works for, me. for me. All right. Hey. You know what they say? Just do it. Uh. Well, if we're not addicted to sugar, which we are, you know, mm -hmm. I know for sure that as we've heard, we're addicted to oil. That's why those people are sticking them, them drills down in mother nature under the Gulf of Mexico. But I was having 
I was getting a perspective in a conversation I was having with our audio engineer and, and dear friend and owner of this fabulous studio, Dave Maloney, who has an old van, which he said going downhill in the snow with the wind behind it, even with the motor turned off, only gets 19 miles to the gallon. <laughs> but he, he made an interesting point. He said, yeah. okay, he said, wouldn't it be interesting if, say I went to go and I wanted to replace this car with one of these new, you know, uh, eco-friendly 40-mile-to-the-gallon car, whether it's a Toyota Recall. That's their new, you know, by the way, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's their new, the, new branding. The, yeah, the Toyota Recall. Well, then you know it's safe. <laughs> yeah, you know it's safe. Because, you know, the, the safest to- Toyota now is the one you don't buy, right? Okay. So he said, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to figure out? So I go and I get this 40-mile-to-the-gallon car, but wouldn't it be nice to know how much – Iron had to be pulled out of the mountains. How much oil, how much water, how much everything it took to make this car and deliver it to me. Okay, and then, as, as quantified in what? Money terms? Dollars? Well, ergs, or? Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's cost. cost oh, well, energy, economic cost, thing. energy, put it in whatever you want to call it. Ergo bucks, doesn't matter, but there's a cost, okay? And how long would it take him running his 19 miles to the gallon old van to, mm-hmm. you know, to become even with this car based on the cost? It might be 10 years. It might make more sense to just keep what you got and start fixing it. Of course, there are things being made today that are impossible to fix, right? Including uh, your old your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Oh, it's better to just throw him or her away and get a new one hey, and fix the relationship. I got a solution for the whole thing. Yeah. Put some throwback in your tank. Yeah, gosh. I mean, wh- where does it end? I mean, we worry about the oil, right? We've got like uh, all this stuff spreading away and we're all feeling Have you noticed, of- by the way, the price has gone up? Oh, yeah. As right. the slick advances... The prices are going up. Diesel is now three thirty four, something like that, three thirty five. Yeah, and remember, diesel used to cost less than regular, but then they found out more people are using diesel, like myself. I have a diesel, so yep. jack it up. That's right. And hey, do, if it affects the truckers, not a problem because that means they'll just jack the prices up of whatever they're carrying. Not and a problem. Up and up and up yep. it goes. So we've got to learn to do more. With less, that's hard when you're watching TV and everybody on TV is doing a lot less with a lot more, right? It's either celebrities who are, what do you say, conspicuous consumption, conspicuously consuming at all times, and, and, or you've got these sitcoms where the people have no visible means of support. How do they live like that? Nobody talks about their job. I mean, remember Bill Cosby? He at least was a doctor, although you never went to the doctor's office. And he never used a doctor term. But at least you knew what he did to live so affluently so that he could worry about his kids' car keys rather than the state of the world. Yeah, it's the father-knows-best uh, uh, kind of family where you, the father goes to work and the, the mother stays at home, takes care of the kids, and the kids are irresponsible or silly or whatever they are. But yeah, no, they never told you what jobs were because fundamentally jobs in the 1950s were not anything that any uh, any kid was interested in. I can say categorically that I wouldn't have wanted to be interested in anything that anybody that I knew was doing. Because it was so square. Ah, yeah. But yeah. earlier than that, early television had people that actually worked. Honeymooners, the guys were in the, drove a bus, the guy was working in the sewer. Uh, Life of Riley carried a little lunch bucket. Even Roseanne when she started, worked in the plastic factory, and that was some of the funniest episodes. But they yanked her out of there, put her in a hair salon, got her out of there soon enough, and just put her at home. And John Goodman, you never knew what he did. He just made you feel good. So that's that's the problem, I think, is we're addicted to the very very things that are ruining, ruining the house we live in. How do we get around this, Pete? 
I don't know. It's uh, it, how often we use less gas. We use less gas by doing less, going fewer places, dri- quote driving less, which means doing less or fundamentally, pu- or putting more people in the car. Putting more people that certainly works uh, for me as I drive down the Diamond Lane of I five uh, through Seattle. But there are thousands of people who are not driving in the diamond lane. They are victims of individualism, the fractured workplace, every man a king or a queen in their car. Well, I'm afraid that culture has got to be dethroned. Oh, boy! Berserko! Berserko! Bob's Berserko Lounge, that is, under the telephone poles in the exclusive Multimart Shopping Center. Refuel yourself in an atmosphere of righteous indignation. Meet cult every Thursday night. Bring a date and dine by the whites of her eyes. At Bob's, you don't have to leave your loved one in the street. Your car is as welcome as you are. Thousands of empty seats in the back for the lonely set. You don't have to wear a clock around your neck to know what time it is at Bob's. Meals cooked with real religious fervor. So don't get a job. Hang out at Bob's. Take up Holstery Avenue Avenue to the corner of 3rd and Furniture. Turn right at the statue of the square round poet and you're at Bob's Berserko Lounge. It's weird. Well, this Goldman Sacrecrap swindle is going to be with us for a long time. So I want us all to take a long, careful look at it so we can understand what's going on. We have to remain in context if we're going to figure out, you know, how to take care of one of the, well, really, one of the greatest scandals and one of the greatest challenges since you and I came to this planet. In December 2006, Goldman Sachs embarked on a frantic effort to shed billions of dollars in risky mortgage securities and purchase exotic insurance to protect itself against what it had concluded could be the collapse of America's housing market. So, see, they saw that the housing market was collapsing. Instead of getting on the top of 85 Broad Street, where their big building is, and shouting it to the world so that everybody could be warned, they decided instead to hide it, conspire, and make some money off the problem. Yet for nine months, until September 20th, 2007, the Wall Street giant didn't disclose its actions in key filings with the Security and Exchange Commission, in telephone conferences with analysts, or in the press. Mm Mm-mm. Naughty, naughty. By the time Goldman finally began to divulge its strategies to the SEC, credit markets were freezing up and the investment bank was well on its way to making billions of dollars in revenue from its negative bets known in the industry as shorts. (laughs) Ha-ha. Coming in shorts and quartz. Consider this contrast between the firm's public face and its private maneuvering. On March 7, 2007, Goldman's chief financial officer, David Vinyar, chaired an internal meeting of the company's risk committee. Notes of the meeting report that the committee discussed the accelerating meltdown among subprime mortgage lenders, the progress of the company's mortgage division in closing down every subprime exposure possible, and signs that subprime rows were beginning to affect commercial real estate. So the writing was on the wall. In fact, they were doing the writing. Shira Fredman, a Vice President of the company's finance division also sent Vinier talking points in advance of the firm's quarterly earnings announcement, stressing that its short bets had enabled Goldman's mortgage division to earn $266 million during the quarter despite the deteriorating subprime market. So people are taking it in the behind all over the world, and these guys are doing just fine. 
During the March 13th conference call with analysts, however, Vinyar made no mention of Goldman's short bets or the $266 million gain. Instead, he said the market had seen a little bit of nervousness, but the housing weakness had been so far largely contained. What should be largely contained is Mr. Vinier. He should be contained in some great big prison and be somebody's bitch. It's still unclear whether the federal laws designed to protect consumers from deceptive marketing required Goldman to reveal more information earlier than it did. Well, Goldman spokesman Samuel Robinson said, We are not required to disclose individual trading positions. Rather, we disclose the financial performance of the firm. In this regard, net revenues from the residential mortgage business represented about 1% of the firm's total revenue in 2007. Let me kind of translate what Sam Robinson said, which is, right now it's still legal for us to lie and cheat and not let you know what's happening. We're coming at you, but you can't see it. The wagers, however, (laughs) these wagers, these short bets, save Goldman billions in losses. SEC disclosure rules revolve around the idea that information that's material to a company's or an investment's fortunes should be disclosed, but it's not clear whether Goldman will face legal liability uh, uh, for choosing not to reveal its exit plan to its shareholders who benefited from the strategy. I think that the new feeling in Congress, this populist revolt against these criminal banks, may work in Goldman's saxocrap uh disfavor, shall we say. They are on the defensive where they very well belong. We should send them into the end zone, in fact. However, Goldman's limited disclosures in the offering circulars it gave the investors that bought its mortgage securities could cause legal problems. It is already causing legal problems. At issue is whether Goldman's bets against the housing market were so material or relevant to investors that their disclosures could have convinced them not to buy its products. Yeah, they... Paulson and his hedge fund got together the crappiest possible investments and sold it to these people. And Goldman said, these are A number one. So I think, yeah, maybe maybe their lying and hiding did have some effect upon the viability of these assets. You know that whole towns, well, Iceland went down over this. Towns all over Germany and, and Norway collapsed. They all bought these bad bonds. So Without purchasers for its risky uh, securities, Goldman's exit strategy would have flopped. So if they didn't lie to the people and get them to buy it, they'd have to hold this stuff on their books. Well, materiality, i.e. whether this is material to the issue in such cases, is a complicated, mixed question of law and fact decided on a case-by-case basis, said Frank Partnoy, a University of San Diego law professor, and we don't know the answer until a judge rules. Asked why Goldman disclosed in late 2007, but not earlier, that it had been net short for most of the year. Company spokesman Sam Robinson, here we go again, said companies don't report on every single area of activity in every quarter. Backtrack, backtrack, cut and fold. He said that the September 2007 disclosure was in response to intense investor and analyst interests. Widows and orphans were pounding on his door, crying and dying on his threshold. Goldman has stressed that it limited its mortgage dealings to qualified institutional investors such as pension funds and insurance companies that have fewer legal rights to disclosure about securities risks. <laughs> pension funds. Wait a minute. Isn't that the money they're supposed to give me after 40 years of loyal work? Huh? I'm not uh, my pension plan um, administrators doesn't have the right to find out that he's being sold crap by these mumsers. Goldman's decision to retreat 
from the cresting housing market came at a senior level meeting Vineyard organized on December 14, 2006, after its mortgage traders reported losses for 10 straight days. It only took 10 days for them to decide to short the whole thing. The day after the meeting, Goldman Mortgage uh, Chief Dan Sparks, he's the one that appeared before a Senator Levin, remember, Levin said, this is a shitty deal. You kept selling these people these shitty deals. This, the, this term shitty deal, of course, appeared in a Goldman uh, Sachs of Crap internal memo. Dan Sparks was the guy who said, well, uh, you know, really, it's just a matter of risk. Hum, ha, hum, ha, hum, ha. It was his poor performance that I think created this whole turnaround in Congress, even amongst the Wall Street-loving Republicans. Well, uh, so the day after the meeting, Goldman, Goldman Mortgage Chief Dan Sparks instructed his team in an email to reduce the company's inventory of billions of dollars in risky mortgage loans to cash out losing bets that home prices would keep rising to monitor the current value of its offshore mortgage securities more closely and to be ready for the good opportunities that are coming. Three days later, Fabrice Touré, the mortgage trader, who's now a defendant in the SEC suit, wrote that his unit had a big short on. You mean he walked around the office with a big short on? I mean, did he go into those martini bars with a big short on and nobody noticed it? Come on! As subprime mortgages lenders began to collapse under the weight of rising loan defaults, Goldman was cashing in. In February 22, 2007, email Sparks told trader Josh Birnbaum, Michael Swenson, and David Lehman to cash in $3 billion in bets. You called the trade right. Now monetize a lot of it, he wrote. You guys are doing very well. During the same period, Goldman marketed more than $11 billion in securities backed by risky mortgages, $4.8 billion in subprime loans to questionable borrowers. Questionable means they didn't ask them the right questions. And $6.2 billion in so-called Alt-A loans, a slightly less risky category whose borrowers had low credit scores, uh, according to categories that are considered risky by the SEC. Look, they were lo they were giving mortgages to people's pets. I mean, my canary owned three condominiums in Chula Vista. Goldman's short bets, which, is, which it began to place as early as 2005, were carried out using insurance-like contracts known as credit default swaps. Goldman would pay an annual premium that usually accounted to 1% to 2% of the face value of the contract, but collected big if the securities collapsed. And they did. The newly released Goldman records show that it executed the strategy by doing this, selling bundles of securities in the Cayman Islands. At least 16 of these deals included exotic bets on subprime securities in which Goldman would profit if the underlying loans defaulted. Goldman stood to make $2 billion in one deal known as Hudson Mezzanine SP. Now, Mezzanine on Wall Street refers to kind of the shadowy investment characters. Those are the ones you step down to to get things done. Hudson Mezzanine. The securities initially received the top investment grade rating of AAA, but has been reduced to junk status as of today. Junk, junk, junk. Fifty billion dollar babies You send them off to war Well that's the price of freedom, baby We gotta settle the score With talk as cheap as a paper flag 
watching America While America is watching the TV Okay, Pete, uh, an exciting new event on uh, the show today, tomorrow, and the next day. So we Ooh, got a three-parter three here three coming Serialized. Like yes, uh, as a matter of fact, it is a serial. Back from 1936, uh, this was the serial that introduced the famous villain, The Electrician, uh, to matinee moviegoers everywhere. Uh, it's called The Fuse of Doom. So turn on your black and white radios, because here it comes. Portabaki International Pictures presents The Fuse of Doom, a new Frank Acne serial thriller starring Andrew T.P. Luggett as billionaire industrialist Jonas Acne, Marshall Camp as his son and ward Frank Acne, P. Wee Rodriguez as newspaper magnate Charles Foster Dudley, and Rex Spofford as Professor Emmanuel Archetype, O.D., with Mr. X as the electrician. <laughs> And now, chapter one. Should old acquaintance be forgot? 
Professor Archetype, Publisher Dudley, and industrial giant Acne are seated in the library, smoking cigars and holding <coughs> champagne glasses. The butler, Benway, comes in and refills their glasses. He takes a quick swig out of the bottle for himself and then whispers in Acne's ear. Are you quite sure, Benway? No, not at all, sir. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> You may go, Ben. I just did, sir. Well, then, just clean up the stain on your yeah, yeah, sir. Gentlemen, the time has come. Both of Mickey's hands are pointing at 12 at last. Welcome to 1920. Don't forget that. Gentlemen, gentlemen, before we toast in the new decade, you are no doubt wondering what strange reasons compelled me to draw you away from the mammoth celebration in the grand ballroom of the East Wing. You know, I've never seen a happier mammoth. What a I'll smile. drink to that. Not yet, yeah. Professor. That's what? Then explain yourself, Agni. <laughs> Is this another of your blasted practical jokes? Jonas, I think we've kept Mr. Dudley in suspense long enough. Yes, oh, right. I like him in suspense. Put some cuffs on them. Oh. Why exactly, Professor? Keeping a story of this magnitude from an old cub reporter like Charles Foster Dudley has been no easy task. But that's exactly what I intend to do. What, 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 what? The information which we are about to reveal must not go beyond the walls of this room. Benway! Sir? Benway, I, I thought I told you to go. I didn't have to go, sir. Oh, well, that's good. Well, then draw the curtains as you leave. Well, if you insist, sir, I'm not much of an artist. I don't know what you're up to, Acme. Oh. <laughs> I think it's maybe three or four a day. Isn't uh, a couple it? of quarts will do. <laughs> but I can tell you right now that if what you say is of any consequence to the little people... Wait, wait. You mean the leprechauns? No, the working man. Oh. Leprechauns work. I have thousands of them in my meatpacking plant. Well, they're, they're packing meat. Yes, they are. Well, better than packing weapons. Yeah, it's green, my, the only green meat I'll eat, you know. It's my sworn duty as publisher of the Dudley News, the Dudley Star, the Dudley Planet, and the Saturday Evening Dudley to I make... That. Known all the little facts. Yeah. Would your sediments remain unchanged sediments? if the man directly responsible for the incredible discovery you are about to see is none other than the legendary Dr. Emmanuel Archetype? Archetype? I thought he was dead. So I no. am. Oh, yes, you look, you ba, ba, look ba, well. Ba, but you went down uh, with the Lusitania. And the Lusitania went down. It went down without me. But why? I wasn't on the Lusitania. What were you on? Opium. I thought oh, you were on sabbatical. Yeah, that too. Well, a terrific time. But I used the time wisely. Perfected a device which has for years deluded the greatest minds of science and made them soft. Yes. And I am turning over my entire industrial racehorses. Uh, resources. Yes, resources. them too. Uh, to investigate the potentialities of this, the most miraculous scientific achievement of this already miraculous century, Doctor! The Zeppelin II! Oh! Oh! Fantastic! Not bad music either, huh? Well, and I waited for just the right point to come in, didn't I? I see now why you pledged me to secrecy. You do? I don't. Well, it's in the script. Read further on. Oh, there it is. If this device ever fell, see, into the wrong hands, yes. I shudder. I'm like shuddering. That's me. Shudder, no, yeah. oh, it's radio. That's quaking, see? not yeah. shuddering. Okay, this is shuddering. I shudder to think of the catatonic consequences for all mankind. Exactly. The Zeppelin tube can be used as a great tool for good or for evil. And Dr. Archetype has entrusted that decision to me. Wah, 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 Jethro. What a fantastic story. If 
If only I could print it. No, 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 no gentlemen, no. gentlemen. Maybe I'd do it The longer. toast I promised. Ah. Oh, yes, sir, the toast, sir. I, I finished drawing the curtains, oh, sir. Cubist. This rather, rather nice sketch, yes, too, if I do say I, so I myself. Take it home with oh, me, perhaps. I'm sure, gentlemen, the toast is nice and cold by now. Oh, and here's a mysterious note for you, Mr. Dudley. Well, uh, let me uh, shake this piece of paper and pretend I'm reading this. Ah, yes, excuse sir. me. I've just learned that I... Have to go to the bathroom. Why don't you pretend to act sometime, too? No, no, but no, no, not before the toast, Shirley. I mean, Dudley. Benway can go for you. What? Shirley could, I mean, Benway, might you go for me? Uh, yes, sir, I, I think I could. Oh, you kiss like Benchley, but you smell like Walcott. <laughs> I'm going to the bathroom. I just went all over my shoes. Gentlemen... We three have been encrusted with a great oh, and Wait. dangerous responsibility. Let us drink to our sacred mission. A safe and practical use for the Zeppelin tube. What? So we meet again, gentlemen. Where is he? Everything's gone to dark. Thank you for bringing this extraordinary device to my attention. I can't read my script. I have unaided an opportunity to put it to good use. He's... Uh, uh, wait, 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 wait. Don't go, don't go. He's... he's gone. Where are you, you fiend? He must be here somewhere in the house. Oh. You know, if the Zeppo tube gets into the wrong hands. gone! Look, wait, wait, wait. Look at this acting job over here. Oh, my God. My God, this is New York quality. These things happen to our type. Look at the glassy stare in his mouth. Oh, it's better than Marceau. It's, it's a fuse. A blown fuse. Stay tuned. Next fire time. Same firelight station for the curse of Cobra Valley. Cobras. The Cobras. next oh, no. thrilling episode drink. of the fuse <laughs> of doom. Do, 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 do. <laughs> And that's just the beginning of the excitement of the Fuse of Doom. Listen in again to Radio Free Oz tomorrow on your black and white radios for part two. Yeah, there's three parts all together. Yeah. It's very exciting. I mean, Frank Acme, right? <laughs> Frank Acne, actually. Is it Frank Acne? Yes, his dad's yeah. named Acme, but <laughs> poor kid. <laughs> well, he's still young. He doesn't become an Acme until he, that's his, right, fa- till, yeah. his future clears. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, uh, back though, back then in those days, you mm-hmm. know, and in the 30s and such, everybody was smoking cigarettes on screen. Smoking cigarettes was oh, like a yeah. big deal, remember? You bet. It was, uh, let's see, Philip Morris, my dad's Philip Morris. Yep. Yeah, my dad was Lucky Strikes. There you he go. He got me on Lucky Strikes. I got turned on to smoking cigarettes in college because uh, as a freshman, and I wasn't smoking, didn't smoke in, I didn't smoke in high school, never thought about it. Only the, one of the fast boys smoked cigarettes, not uh, many of them, and they used to roll the packs up in their short sleeve shirts and all that. Um, I go to my first class in philosophy. <laughs> Sounds like Shauna <laughs> Oh, it was, yeah. But then, yeah. Cleveland. Cleveland in the 50s. Yeah. So I go to philosophy class, and the teacher asks this guy next to me a question. Instead of answering immediately because he didn't have a clue, he pulls out a pack of cigarettes, taps them on the desk, you know, tap, mm. tap, 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 lights it up, and by then figures out some mediocre answer. And I thought, ah, and then the teacher lit up, so I learned to smoke. That it was all peer pressure. And well, cigarettes have come a long way, you know, to the point now where they are totally 
basically it's negative. The, you know, just proteins are okay, and broken glass is bad, and cigarettes are bad. Yeah, I don't know how it is in whatever state somebody else might be living in, but in this state, about the only place you can get cigarettes, they're at these smoke stores. You can yeah. go there. Or at the Texaco shortstop where you can buy fried foods in great abundance. Uh, I go in there and get my New York Times in the morning. And and the people who come in, about one in three will get a couple of packs of cigarettes. Well, $8 a pack. Here. Yep. And $8 look, a pack. You can get the Sweep Up brand just for five ninety five. When know. I was in the Army in Fort Dix at the PX, it was a dollar a carton. But those were in other days and those people are dead. Okay, here's something for you. Though. <laughs> okay. Australia could become the first country in the world to require cigarette packages to be stripped of logos and designs. Can you imagine? Cigarettes alone have to say, touching this pack may give you cancer. You know, but that doesn't work. It doesn't stop anybody. Now they can't use the logos or the designs to draw young people in. It's going to be like generic or something. By July 2012, all cigarettes in the country will be sold in plain packs carrying graphic warnings against smoking according to an anti-smoking initiative announced by Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's office. He says, now the big tobacco companies are going to go out there and whinge, whine, complain, Consider every form of legal, legal action known to man, he said. That's par for the course. We, the government, will not be intimidated by any big company, tobacco company, trying to get in the road of doing the right thing. In the road of doing the right thing. That's what he said. No, it's, it's Australian. It's, yeah, right. It's, 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 you know. Health Minister Nicola Roxon told uh, CNN affiliate and public broadcaster ABC that the legislation will be drafted to withstand legal challenges from tobacco companies. We have firm advice that this action can be taken. Our legislation will be very carefully drafted, she said. Cigarette companies have said they are looking at legal options, worried the law will cut into their profits. What do you think? They'll cut into it? their profits? Yeah, I mean, okay. All well, right, that's yeah. not a bad idea to begin with. No, uh, no, it's not a bad idea. You, you know, this legislation makes me really think of, of some uh, positive word replacement. So if we simply replace the word gun yeah. mm -hmm. for cigarette, yeah. And then applied the same legal uh, uh, laws, you know, applied the same laws to right. uh, the gun product as to the cigarette product. So in order to get a pack of cigarettes, you'd have to go through a, a an identity check, right? Oh, have, absolutely. Uh, have to do a background check to find out. Make sure if, you weren't an alien terrorist. And also find out if there's anybody in, in a closed space that you live with that might get secondary smoke. I mean, yeah, so, you know, it isn't what guns don't kill people, cigarettes do. Now, that doesn't make no, sense. that doesn't make any sense. And without yeah. any logos, I mean, I grew up cigarette logos and cigarette advertising as part of my rich heritage. Oh, sure. I mean, the it Marlboro was, Man. Oh, yeah, who, of course, died of lung cancer. Right. Uh, yeah, the Marlboro Man and not, not a— Lucky not Strike a, Green has gone to war. Not a coffin, a carload. Now a coffin in every carload. <laughs> Times have changed. As demonstrators took to the streets in Greece to protest the government's austerity plan, traders—these are financial traders— not traitors, although one can be the other, worried that the Greek debt crisis would spread, and it sent financial indexes lower for a second day. The euro took the brunt of the fall, dropping to $1.2896 to the euro from $1.2988. Doesn't sound like much, but it costs somebody a billion dollars. Some analysts have estimated the currency could fall as low as $1.20 by the end of the summer. When I went to Paris two years ago, it was a buck sixty, so it's going to be a lot cheaper to get some of that fine wine and smelly cheese. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average, which had its biggest drop in three months on May 4th, was down 22.98 points or 9.19% Wednesday morning. It dropped altogether about 100 points. And, you know, as this euro crisis deepens, I tell you, I think the euro crisis is the tipping point. I've been looking for what's actually going to create the great world correction. Correct me if I'm wrong. But the euro is in free fall. And despite the rescue package that the European Union and the International Monetary Fund offered Greece, there are concerns that the crisis could turn into a full-blown European banking disaster that could choke credit to businesses and consumers at a time when the continent's economy remained fragile. Now, understand, they're trying to get Germany to pay all, you know, to, to do all the rescuing because it's just about the only economy in Europe that's strong. But there's only so much that Germany can do. And when Germany runs out of shekels, they're going to turn to the IMF. And where does the IMF get their money? From you and me, baby. Foremost among the worries is the possibility that Spain, remember Spain, okay, a country with an economy that dwarf, dwarfs Greece might also come under pressure. Well, it is already under pressure, and so is Portugal, and they're downgrading their bonds. It means it costs them a lot more to borrow, and it's not going to stop there. The demonstrations against austerity measures uh, took a deadly turn last Wednesday in Greece when three people died in an Athens bank that was set on fire. Policymakers in Germany, meanwhile, pushed Parliament for quick passage of the Greek bailout, warning that failure to do so could set off a chain reaction of debt crisis around the continent. This meant markets were perhaps poised to slow down, but not reverse their downtrend. Well, that's, of course, the light at the end of the tunnel thinking. The fact is that we're all tied together. I mean, there used to be many, many currencies in Europe, so in currency, so if the Greek drachma, you know, went down the tubes, nobody seemed to notice, or if the Portuguese peseta or whatever it is, the Porto, if it disappeared, nobody noticed. But it's all euros now. And everybody around the world, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Americans, the Saudi Arabians, Osama bin Laden, everybody is heavily invested in international currencies, what they call baskets of currencies. I think that's what Little Red Riding Hood carries into the dark financial forest. Stock with euros used to be a heavy basket. Right now, the euros weigh a lot less. But most of the attention being paid was on the sovereign debt contagion. What that basically means is a disease among sovereign currencies. Moody's said Wednesday, Moody's is a, a rating service, that in the event of another downgrade, Portugal's ratings would fall by one or at most two notches, meaning they would be, they would be still be rated as investment grade, but a lot closer to junk. The review, Moody said, reflected the recent deterioration of Portugal's public finances, as well as the economy's long-term growth challenges, and it noted that the government's debt is neither unsustainable nor unbearable. Sounds unbearable to me if I was living in Portugal, or, or if I was living in Greece and told that I'd just have to drink, like, half as much ouzo, and I don't know, really have to pay taxes, because they're famous for not paying taxes. Rating agencies also warned that European banks could come under pressure. I love that term, come under pressure. I think the word is panic. The banks are big holders of government debt, and their loan losses could mount as economies stagnate. Alex Weber, the head of Germany's Bundesbank, said there is a threat of grave contagion effects for other member states in the monetary union. An increasing negative feedback loop effect has great effects on capital markets. We're talking contagion. I think that brings up the word plague. And negative feedback means the bad makes more bad, the bad makes more bad, the plague spreads, the dark ages. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody, although I'm scared myself, but we've got to start paying attention. 
I mean, it's not enough to just watch 24 and reruns of the Gilmore Girls and think everything is fine, you know, and not worry about the shrimp drowning in oil and not worry about the euro or how unhealthy the American health force is or how much ignorance is just pouring out across the nation. We've got to start paying attention or... As Dr. Infermo, my dear friend, the inventor of the Devil Master said, we are doomed. For 15 years, Eddie Anderson, a farmer, has been a strict adherent of no-till agriculture. That's an environmentally friendly technique that all but eliminates plowing to curb erosion and the harmful runoff of fertilizers and pesticides. But not this year. Why? Well, On a recent afternoon, Mr. Anderson watched as tractors crisscrossing a rolling field, plowing and mixing herbicides into the soil to kill weeds where soybeans will soon be planted. Just as the heavy use of antibiotics contributed to the rise of drug-resistant supergerms, American farmers' near-ubiquitous use of the weed killer Roundup has led to the rapid growth of tenacious new superweeds just what we need. You know, we're a superpower, super tankers are breaking up, you know, now, and we got the super dome, and now we've got, and we got super moms, which are cool, but now we've got super weeds to fight them. Mr. Anderson and farmers throughout the East, Midwest, and South are being forced to spray fields with more toxic herbicides, pull weeds by hand, and return to more labor-intensive methods like regular plowing. So the whole Frankenfood thing is putting people back to work, back to doing the farm drudgery that they thought the guys in the white coats at Monsanto, etc., was going to free them from. We're back to where we were 20 years ago, said Mr. Anderson. Uh, who will plow about one-third of his 3,000 acres of soybean fields this spring, more than he has in years. We're trying to find out what works. Farm experts say that such efforts could lead to higher food prices, oh good, lower crop yields, rising farm costs, and more pollution of land and water. Quote, It is the single largest threat to production agriculture that we have ever seen, said Andrew Wargo III, the president of Arkansas Association of Conservation Districts. The first resistant species to pose a serious threat to agriculture was spotted in a Delaware soybean field in 2000. Since then, the problem has spread, with 10 resistant species in at least 22 states infesting millions of acres, predominantly soybeans, cotton, and corn. The superweeds could temper American agriculture's enthusiasm for some genetically modified crops. You think so? Soybeans, corn, and cotton that are engineered to survive spraying with Roundup have become really standard in American fields. However, if Roundup doesn't kill the weeds, farmers have little incentive to spend the extra money for the special seeds. Oh, really? Roundup, originally made by Monsanto, but also sold by others under the generic name glyphosate, has been little short of a miracle chemical for farmers. Watch out for miracles when they're chemicals. It kills a broad spectrum of weeds, is easy and safe to work with, and breaks down quickly, reducing its environmental impact. All very well and good. Sales took off in the late 1990s after Monsanto created its brand of Roundup Ready Crops that were genetically modified to tolerate the chemical allowing farmers to spray their fields to kill the weeds while leaving the crop unharmed. 
Of course, you know, all the uh, tree huggers that worry about frankenfood ask, well, if you're changing the genetic seed of the soybean so it won't be hurt by Roundup, what's it going to do to me? And how long is it going to take to find out? But of course, there's the American ethos, the American logo. Just do it. Don't worry about the concomitants. Just do it. Today, Roundup Ready crops account for 90% of the soybeans and 70% of the corn and cotton grown in the United States. Let me repeat that. Roundup Ready crops, which are now causing super weeds to become abundant, they account for 90% of the soybeans, 70% of the corn and cotton grown in the United States. But farmers sprayed so much Roundup that weeds quickly evolved to survive it. What we're talking about here is Darwinian evolution in fast forward, said Mike Owen, a weed scientist at Iowa State University. Now, Roundup-resistant weeds like horseweed and giant ragweed are forcing farmers to go back to more expensive techniques that they have long ago abandoned. I mean, this is really kind of like uh, the new horror show, Uh Horseweed, giant ragweed, people running from the fields being chased by these, these genetic monsters. Mr. Anderson, the farmer, remember him, is wrestling with a particularly tenacious species of glyphosate-resistant pest called Palmer amaranth, or pigweed, whose resistance has, has become seriously infesting farms in western Tennessee, this year with pigweed. Well, maybe the weed was named after the pigs in the white coats and the business suits who dreamed up frankenfood in the first place. Pigweed can grow three inches a day and reach seven feet or more, choking out crops. It is so sturdy that it can damage harvesting equipment. Pigweed? In an attempt to kill the pest before it becomes that big, Mr. Anderson and his neighbors are plowing their fields and mixing herbicides into the soil. So it's all been for naught. That threatens to reverse one of the agricultural advantages that is bolstered by the Roundup Revolution. Minimum till farming. That's it. You don't have to till the earth as much because the plants don't have to worry about weeds because Roundup takes care of the weeds and the genetic change in the seed means they aren't screwed up by Roundup. By combining Roundup and Roundup-ready crops, farmers did not have to plow under the weeds to control them. That reduced erosion, the runoff of chemicals into waterways, and the use of fuel for tractors. Sounds good to me. If frequent plowing becomes necessary again, quote, that is certainly a major concern for our, our environment, says Ken Smith, a weed scientist at the University of Arkansas. In addition, some critics of genetically engineered crops say that the use of extra herbicides, including some old ones that are less environmentally tolerable than Roundup, belies the claims made by the biotechnology industry that its crops would be better for the environment. Remember the old herbicides? I had a guy on, the, uh, on Radio Friaz many, many years ago who rode his horse across the United States. And when he got to Ohio and crossed Ohio, my home state, he heard not one songbird. They had all been killed by the DDT. The biotech industry is taking us into a more pesticide-dependent agriculture when they've already promised uh, something else, and, and we need to be going in the opposite direction, said Bill Fries, a science policy analyst uh, at the Center for Food, Food Safety in Washington. So far, weed scientists estimate that the total amount 
of United States farmland affected by Roundup-resistant weeds is relatively small, 7 million to 10 million acres, according to Ian Heap, director of the International Survey of Herbicide-Resistant Weeds which is financed by the agricultural chemical industry. So it could be more. I mean, are we going to believe their statistics? They're the one that told us that this was the savior. Everything was going to be cool. There um, there are roughly 170 million acres planted with corn, soybeans, and cotton, the crops most affected. Roundup-resistant weeds are also found in several other countries, including Australia, China, and Brazil, according to the survey. Monsanto, which once argued that resistance would not become a major problem, now cautions against exaggerating its impact. It's a serious issue, but it's manageable. Sounds like BP talking about the oil spill, said Rick Cole, who manages weed-resistant issues in the United States for the company. No, he does weed spin. He's the weed spin doctor. Of course, Monsanto stands to lose a lot of business if farmers use less Roundup and Roundup-ready seeds. You're having to add another product with a Roundup to kill your weeds, said Steve Doster, a corn and soybean farmer in Barnum, Iowa. So then, why are we buying Roundup-ready product? Now, that's a good question, Steve. Monsanto argues that Roundup still controls hundreds of weeds, but the company is concerned enough about the problem that it is taking the extraordinary step of subsidizing cotton farmers' purchases of competing herbicides to supplement Roundup. These people are totally fatutsed. They're paying farmers to buy their competitors' herbicides because their frankenfood doesn't work. Oi, oi, oi! Monsanto and other agricultural biotech companies are also developing genetically engineered crops resistant to other herbicides, and on and on and on. Bayer, those are the people that started with aspirin and now are giving us other headaches, is already selling cotton and soybeans resistant to glufosinate, another weed killer. Monsanto's newest corn is tolerant of both glyphosate and glufosinate, and other things that I find difficult to pronounce. And the company is developing crops resistant to dicamba, an older pesticide. Who makes up these names? Who are the bozos that sit around some table in New Jersey, or is it Delaware, making up these names? Dicamba, sounds good to me. Put it on the ground, see what it does. Syngenta, here's another one, is developing soybeans tolerant of Callistro. Callistro sounds like one of those bad emperors in Rome. And Dow Chemical is developing corn and soybeans resistant to 2,4-D, a component of Agent Orange, the defoliant used in the Vietnam War.
Peter, I'm uh, reading uh, this week, I'm reading some unwanted poems. That's what I call this little pamphlet of poems that I wrote when we were on the road back in 1993. But hey, things never change. Well, it's a good way to end the show. You give, give us another of those poems. Okay, what a show. It's all smoke and mirrors, 38-year-old union pipe fitter. And the prisons, they're filling them up with two-bit druggies while the kingpins walk. The problem is, we got $5 an hour jobs in a world where it takes $10 an hour to live. We've got a serious problem, 38-year-old postal worker, and I don't think midnight basketball is going to cure it. I'm sick of the whole system. Mr. Dinsmore, 64, whose job involves dismantling machines in a shuttered General Motors plant and framing a mass 
I'm 75 years old, and I don't deserve another heart, retired foreman at a tractor factory. I've lived my life. Everybody thinks they ought to live forever, and they can't. Spending all this money on old people like me, it's going to bankrupt the country. Oh, yeah. You've had Oz in your ears. we got John Cumming making the ones and zeros work for us. Phil Fountain, the head of the Oz Design Group, making RadioFreeOz.com look so chic. Scott Wilde, head of social media. Tom Gedwello, our webmaster. Dave Maloney, audio engineer genius. Bill McIntyre, our producer. Dave Osman, co-host, and I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Hey, see you tomorrow. See you then. <laughs>